the divided kingdom. We're in the reign of Ahab in Israel and have just talked about uh, the great victory that God uh, empowered through his prophet Elijah over the 850 pagan prophets on Mount Carmel and uh, the end of a three and a half year drought that God had sent at the request of uh, Elijah to sort of get the attention of the people, I think, and demonstrate the power of God. The rain comes. Uh, we had a bit of a rain yesterday. Some of us were, I mean today, some of us were talking a little bit ago about how fast a whole lot of water fell this morning. It uh, just seemed to flood everything in about two minutes. I suppose that was probably nothing compared to the rain that ended that drought back in the days of Ahab. But in any case, you might remember from our last part of our class last time that uh, Ahab is told by Elijah to, you know, get in his chariot and head on down because the rain's coming, and then God empowers Elijah to run ahead of him down Mount Carmel all the way to Jezreel, which is in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. Uh, so that would have been probably a sight to see. In any, in any case, we have both now Ahab returning to Jezreel and Elijah there also. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about Elijah fleeing from Jezebel who threatens him there in Jezreel and uh, Elisha joining Elijah, Elijah calling him to be his uh, follower, if you will, preparing him to sort of take his place. And then Ahab will have a battle with Ben-Hadad, king of Aram or Syria, as it's sometimes called. So those will be the three main events that we'll look at tonight. Let's start in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah fleeing Jezebel. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. <clears throat> Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more, so, more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of those by tomorrow about this time. Uh, it seems like it would have been a whole lot simpler just to say, I'm going to kill you like you killed them, but uh, that's not what she said. Uh, had to go a long way around to get there, but that's what she meant. Um, so Jezebel responds with this threat. She vows really by her gods, which are, that's not very significant at all, obviously. He just kind of wiped out all of the believers in her gods, the leaders at least of that. Uh, but she swears by her gods that Elijah's going to suffer the same fate as her prophets did. So Elijah flees for his life to Beersheba. It says in verse 3, When he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. Uh, interesting things about the Bible, I think, just in passing, I, I like to note these once in a while. A whole lot of phrases, common phrases, idioms in English, have come to us out of the English translations of the Bible. Uh, I believe this is the first time in any literature where the phrase ran for his life occurs. If you think about it, that's kind of a funny phrase, ran for his life. Uh, but we all know what it means. We've probably used it before. We've probably heard it before. This is the first time it's ever used as far as uh, I could tell in any literature. So I think that's kind of interesting how phrases like that come into our language out of the Bible. We don't give it a second thought. The Bible is very influential in ways we don't realize including the way we speak every day. Uh, but Elijah runs for his life. Of course, Beersheba is far to the south of uh, Judah, what was the United Nation, of course. It was from Dan to Beersheba. So Beersheba is the southern extent, more or less, of, uh, of Judah, the southern kingdom. So he leaves his servant there, 
uh, in Beersheba and goes a, a day's journey into the wilderness. We pick up in verse 4, and he sits down under a broom tree. That would be a juniper tree. It's called a broom tree because uh, the village people would make brooms out of it, obviously. I've seen that done in Africa. They take a juniper and they cut the limbs, they dry them, and they sell, uh, the ladies sell them to each other, you know, for brooms. Uh, and that's the kind of tree he'd be sitting under. And anyway, he's praying to God that he might die. It's enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my father's. Elijah is obviously very discouraged. Uh, he's running for his life. He's afraid of Jezebel's threat. Uh, he's had a great victory, uh, a real high, I'm sure, both emotionally and spiritually for him. And now he's suffering a tremendous low. Uh, feels very insecure, obviously discouraged about the turn of events his own life being threatened after his great victory. That's going to be something that bothers him. So he's praying to God, basically, just let's end it all here, uh, and, and I'll just uh, you know, go on home. So just to follow the geography of his travels, we start on Mount Carmel there uh, at the edge of the Mediterranean Sea. He comes down into Jezreel, and then when Jezebel threatens him straight away, uh, he runs down to Beersheba with his servant, and from there, he's going to go south further into the wilderness and eventually, after a day or so there, take a trip of 40 days and 40 nights down to, to Horeb. This is a time in Israel's history where God was going to use really strong prophets. Elijah particularly is viewed from henceforth as the quintessential prophet of Israel of all time, save for Moses. Uh, but if you look at the way the Jews look at it still and backwards to the time of Elijah. Uh, you know, it's Moses, the lawgiver, Elijah, and the prophets. Elijah is, you know, sort of the quintessential prophet. And uh, here he is uh, all but useless to the Lord because of his discouragement, uh, his fear of Jezebel's threat. And we see God's grace uh, on Elijah really here in helping bring him back to a place where he could be useful for the Lord and would be still greatly useful to the Lord. Uh, it's a great lesson, I think, for us. All of us have low times in our lives for one reason or another, sometimes legitimately, sometimes not. Uh, but God is full of grace and his strength and power can bring us back to where he wants us to be if we'll put ourselves in his hands. So uh, Elijah, again, Please, Jezebel, and uh, God continues to care for him. He's sleeping under the broom tree, and suddenly an angel touches him and, sa and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looks, and there at his head was a cake baked on coals, a jar of water. He ate and drank, lay down again. The angel of the Lord comes back a second time and touches him and says, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. You are on a journey. You may not realize you're on a journey. God's not going to take your life right now, but you're on a journey, and uh, it's too great for you. You can't, you can't do this on your own. That's the message, isn't it? You cannot do this on your own. It's too great for you. God's going to have to help you. Boy, do we need that, that message, right? We cannot do it on our own. We need God's grace. And the angel gives him this message, and so he eats this food, these two meals, and 
gains from those provisions uh, strength that sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights as he travels to the mountain of God, which would be Mount Horeb or Sinai, as we're more familiar. 40 days and 40 nights. A lot of things happen in 40 days and 40 nights in the Bible. The rain during the time of the flood, 40 days and 40 nights. Moses was on the mountain with God, 40 days and 40 nights. The spies spied out the promised land, 40 days and 40 nights. Goliath challenged the armies of Israel, 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus fasted in the desert, 40 days and 40 nights. There's something about that, isn't there? Something about the 40 days and 40 nights. And it's like it represents, maybe in our minds then, as we think about all of those times uh, that it's used, a, a special trial of the people of God. Sometimes it turns out very well and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but it seems to represent this difficult period of time that some of the great people that God's used and has, are his people represents a period of time that God is uh, allowing them to experience some difficulty but typically they come out better on the other side. And uh, I think this 40 days and 40 nights is right in line with all of that in, in Scripture. So again, just looking at what we're looking at ge geographically, uh, here he is in Beersheba to the very far south of uh, the nation of Judah at this time. 40 days and 40 nights, you might remember it took him 40 years to get out of there, but 40 days and 40 nights he goes straight down uh, to Sinai or to Horeb, when we covered this during the period of the conquest, the, uh, no, during the period of the wilderness wanderings, uh, we noted that nobody's 100% sure where Sinai is, so this is just a traditional site. It's down there somewhere, uh, but that gives you an idea of the length that he would have to travel through very difficult and desolate land. Uh, he, he travels on the strength of the food God provided for him. There must have been something nice, special in that food, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, and he is able to make it to, to Horeb. Um, Y'all have any comments to this point? I think what happens next is one of the most interesting, uh, just fascinating and, and um, almost mystical things that happens in all of the Old Testament. Elijah, in verse 9, uh, takes refuge in a cave. The text says, He went into the cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's a great question. <laughs> what are you doing here? That's a question we ought to ask ourselves probably a lot more than we do. Why am I here in this place? Why am I thinking what I'm thinking? Why am I feeling what I'm feeling? Uh, a lot of times we have the feelings, we're in places that we, we don't like, but we don't really ask why, how we got there, what's the purpose of us being there. Well, Elijah gives God an answer. Uh, in verse 10, he says, Well, I've been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. That last part is why he's there. Because he feels that he alone is left in all of Israel. He's uh, 
uh, isolated. Uh, he's distraught about that isolation. But also, during this isolated time, when he feels like he's all by himself, then his life is threatened. He's got no one to turn to, he feels. No comrades in arms, nobody to support him. And a person, a Christian, uh, nowadays, who's out there by him, him or herself, that's isolated from others, uh, finds that it's a very vulnerable position. And Elijah felt all of that and more. So he winds up in a cave on a mountain in Sinai. And this is his explanation to God. God's response uh, to Elijah, I think, is, again, just really, really fascinating. Here's what God tells him in verse 11. He said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Now, he, please note, Elijah does not do that yet. All right, God tells him to. But what happens next is the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks. Now, if you've got a wind that's breaking rocks, that's some more wind. So it's hard telling what, what would be involved in that. Here's this huge uh, tornado on steroids breaking up the mountainside. Um, breaks up the rocks. The Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake. The Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake was a fire. The Lord was not in the fire. So what we've got uh, is the name of an old rock band, Earth, Wind, and Fire. God, God is using all of those elements in a big way to make a statement. These are horrifying events. If, you, if any of us had lived through any one of those things, I mean, we'd be you know, scarred for life, wouldn't we? Uh, and yet, Elijah's in the cave. All of this is going on outside. And he, he can tell, obviously, what's happening. These very powerful events. Using all of the things that ancient man and modern man are fearful of. These are, these are the things that are out of our control. You know, even with all of our modern technology and safety measures and all of that, the hurricanes still get us, the fires still get us, the earthquakes still get us. We can't, can't stop them. They're powerful, they're fearful. So that's what Elijah is feeling, that's what Elijah is experiencing. Please understand, I think, how devastating these events are. God's not in any of those things. The power of God is allowing those things to happen, causing those things even to happen, but God's not in them. Where's God? He's going to be in a still, small voice. And that's a whole lot like it is today. You know, we think, God, why are you allowing these big storms in my life, these awful things happening and all of that, and we look for God and all of that, and God's not in all of that. God's the still, small voice that's telling you, trust me, do my work. Don't worry about all of that. And that's basically what he tells Elijah. So, the fascinating thing about all this to me is God had allowed, you know, 40 days to pass. Elijah was discouraged in solitude. He now sends these powerful and terrifying events, the earth, the wind, the fire. Elijah doesn't find God in any of those things. Here on Horeb, what happens is, and I've wondered for years, as probably many people have, I know many people have, what's the deal? After all of this, uh, when Elijah heard all of it, verse 13, 
he wraps his face in a mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. Suddenly a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Same question and same answer. He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. What's different between that and the first answer that he gave? Nothing. He says exactly the same thing. But there is something that's different. You pick up on it? Where is Elijah now? He's out of the cave. God got him out of the cave. And so it is with us. We're stored up in our hole, feeling sorry for ourselves, wishing we'd just die, and we don't want to do any more for the Lord. We're not going to be used anymore by the Lord. Just take me now, God. And God gets us out of our hole. And the next thing he says to Elijah is, go to work. You're out of the hole now. Go to work. And gives him uh, extraordinarily important things to do. Uh, yes? Yeah, I think there's that too. That all those terrible things, God wasn't in those things, but he was safe where he was. And uh, I, I think came out then to address God. And, and that's what God wanted him to do. The Lord says to him, in response to Elijah saying the same thing he said to begin with, the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Haziel as king over Syria. The wilderness of Damascus was as far north as Elijah was south. It's up beyond north of Israel, beyond Dan. So you're talking about, uh, you know, as far as you could go virtually through all of Israel. So this is not any, you know, just go down the street and do something for me. This is go up to Damascus now and anoint who's going to be the next king of Syria or Aram. Uh, that's the first thing he tells him. He says, also you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. So these would be the next leaders, not just immediately, but he'd anoint these individuals to be the next leaders of Syria and Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. Again, Elisha is going to be the next prophet after Elijah, but not just immediately. And it shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Haziel, Jehu will kill. Whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. In other words, these individual that, individuals that Elijah will anoint are individuals that will do God's bidding in this world. They're not going to be necessarily only righteous people, certainly not Haziel and Jehu, but they will do the job that God wants done in the world. So that uh, is the point of that. And then God waits to all of this, goes through all of this, has this, you know, all these instructions for Elijah, what he's going to do next. And then, and then, he corrects, after all of this, he corrects Elijah's sorry attitude <laughs> after, after all of that. 
And he says to him, in essence, Elijah, you're wrong about being alone. You're not alone. You were never alone. He says, I I have yet reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Well, there were hundreds of thousands of people in Israel. 7,000 is not that many, but it's not none. Okay, it's not zero. 7,000 people who had not uh, compromised themselves with the idols. He wasn't alone. Paul uses this uh, text in Romans chapter 11 to say kind of the same thing to the Israel of his day. Physical Israel was not left alone. Uh, God had rejected them, but there were still some that were going to be grafted in, that were going to be part of true spiritual Israel. And Paul uses this incident, uh, these things that happen here with Elijah to demonstrate that. Has God cast away his people? Romans 11, certainly not. I also am an Israelite, a seed of Abraham, tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with the God of Israel? Lord, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone am left. They seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? Indeed, what does the divine response say to Elijah? It says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And may I say to you that even so, at this present time, there is a remnant. There is not anybody here who is ever going to be all alone in this world trying to do what's right. There's not. God always has his people. They may be small in number. Uh, They may be hard to find. But there are those in this world going through what you're going through and more. That's a very powerful lesson. Uh, Elijah then goes about the business that God gives him to do. Uh, He calls Elisha to follow him. This is now in verse 19. He departed from there and found Elisha, the son of uh, Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12. I, I take that. I guess there are different ways to take this. I gather that, uh, you know, a yoke of oxen, that's a pretty strong pair of animals, and he'd worn 11 yoke out doing his plowing, and it was on the 12th. Uh, so that's pretty impressive plowing, I guess. Uh, so he's on the, the, the 12th, yoke of, 12th yoke of oxen doing, doing the plowing, and Elijah comes up to him and throws his mantle on him. Uh, a mantle, let me just back up to that, according to most scholars, refers to probably some short tunic that's made out of animal skin with hair on it. Um, it was an identifying garment of the prophets. Zechariah 13 and verse 4. It shall be in that day that every prophet will be ashamed of his vision. When he prophesies, they will not wear a robe of coarse hair. That phrase there, a robe is the same word that's translated mantle uh, in 1 Kings. So it's a robe of coarse hair is how it's translated in Zechariah. But it seems to be an identifying garb of the prophets. Um, there's a sim- the same Hebrew word. Elisha doesn't wholly respond in the way that you might like. Uh, 
He, he leaves his oxen he, he, and runs after Elijah. He said, please let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? That, that's not the, the best start to being an apprentice prophet, I guess. I, well, I don't, I'm going to come, but I'm going to go kiss my mom and dad goodbye. Kind of is reminiscent, isn't it, of uh, a story that Jesus tells, uh, or experienced, I should say, that's told uh, uh, in Luke chapter 9, where he's telling people to follow him, and one says, well, let me first go bury my father. Uh, somebody else um, says to him, I'll follow you, but first let me bid farewell to those in my household. And Jesus doesn't respond favorably to either one of those responses. He said, let the dead bury the dead. Uh, he said, any man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is not fit for the kingdom. That's sort of an interesting metaphor considering what Elisha was doing <laughs> when Elijah called him. I don't know if it has reference to that or not. But in any case, uh, same principle. When we're called to do something by the Lord, let's get busy and do it. Let's not make excuses, procrastinate, think of other things we can do first. Even though they may be important things, let's put God's ways first and doing what he wants us to do. But Elisha goes and sacrifices a, the pair of oxen which he'd been plowing with. He feeds uh, the meat to the people, boils the meat and feeds it to the people, and begins following and Elijah, Elijah and ministering to him. Uh, it says at the end of verse 21, then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. So he's going to learn a lot from Elisha. Elijah is. Elisha is going to learn a lot from Elijah in a short period of time. So we leave the two prophets now and we go back and look at what's going on up in the north with Ahab who has left now Jezreel where I think there's uh, a bit of a, a royal property there, but he's left Jezreel in the Jezreel Valley and has gone back over to Samaria, his capital. And there's a bit of a drama going on between him and Ben-Hadad, king of Syria. We have Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathering forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, so he has this coalition with horses and chariots, he goes up and besieges Samaria. I mentioned this to you when we were looking at Samaria the other day. Uh, really hard to, to breach it uh, because of it, the high ground and the way it was fortified most of the time, but not hard to besiege it. You could surround it with an army uh, pretty quickly. It just took a long time to get through it. Uh, but in any case, so Ben-Hadad's able to do that. Uh, he sends messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, says to him, your silver, your gold are mine, your loveliest wives, your children are mine. The king of Israel said, my Lord, O king, just as you say, all that I have is yours. So Ahab readily agrees to these terms of Ben-Hadad, basically saying, give me all your good stuff. Uh, and, uh, and so Ahab says, okay. And then Ben-Hadad says, well, how about some more stuff? Um, verses 5 and 6, messengers came back and uh, Ben-Hadad says back to Ahab, you shall deliver to me your silver, your gold, your wives, and your children. But I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time. They shall search your house and the houses of your servants. And it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will put in their hands and take it. So it's not just you've got to give me a bunch of spoils, but you've got to give me everything that's personally yours that's of any value. So you talk about a, a front, you know, trying to shame this, this king that he's taking all this from. And, and Ahab is really not much of a leader, but he, he does consult 
some of the elders of the city and uh, they say, don't do it. And so he says, okay, I'm not going to do it. And that gets uh, he and Ben-Hadad, Yayan, back and forth. And Ben-Hadad says, um, verse 9, um, well, verse 9 is, his resp- is Ahab's response to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad sent back to him in verse 10, the gods do to me and more so also if enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. What Ben-Hadad is saying is there's not going to be enough left of you and what you've got in Samaria to even fill a handful of everybody that I've got. So my army is so great and you're going to be so wiped out by this time tomorrow uh, that we won't even pick up, all of my soldiers won't get one handful of what's left of of y'all. Uh, that's a pretty bold threat. And then comes uh, one of my favorite quotes of all the Old Testament. I've used it a lot when it comes to sporting events, when you have one side or the other talking about how they're going to put the smack down on the other side, you know, and they're going to win, and the other side doesn't have a chance and all this kind of stuff. And um, let not the one who puts on his armor boast like the one who takes it off. That, what, that's, that's really well worded. Uh, you, you can talk all the smack you want to before it all gets started. It's not going to make any difference when it's all over with. If you've accomplished something, then you can say something. Uh, so that's, that was Ahab's advice, an actually pretty wise statement considering who it's coming from. Ben-Hadad is not really serious about the situation, so in verse 12 we see him drinking at his command post with uh, all of these kings that he's got in his coalition and saying, okay, we're going to get ready and attack the city tomorrow. This is the second time in just a couple of lessons we've seen leaders you know, getting themselves drunk in a time when they need to ha- be sharp-minded and preparing strategy and all of that, and it, it never works. Uh, drinking is not good, but it's certainly not good for those who are in leadership positions. Uh, you, you can't think straight, you don't take things seriously, uh, and you see that in, in what happens next. This, this is a, I showed you a picture of the hill of Samaria. This is taken from the top of the hill of Samaria, looking back down across the countryside. From the top of there, you can just see all the way around for miles and miles and miles and miles. And uh, what you have in verse 13, a prophet approaches Ahab, king of Israel, and says, thus says the Lord, have you seen all this great multitude? Talking about the army of Syria. And Ahab had sure enough seen it. All he had to do was look out the window. You could, you could have seen all the army besieging Samaria, looking just around. He could have easily seen the great number. He could tell yeah, how big the army was, so it's a rhetorical question. Yeah, I, I've seen them. He's been looking down and looking around and just seen them covering the, uh, the valley like grasshoppers probably. Uh, so he's, he's seen that. You could easily see that geographically. That uh, kind of gives you a picture of maybe what he might have looked at. But Ahab uh, becomes victorious with God helping him. The prophet tells him, uh, for God, um, I will deliver it into your hand. I will deliver all this multitude in your hand. You shall know that I am the Lord. Ahab said, well, by whom? Who are you going to deliver us by? And and, uh, the Lord says, well, by the young leaders of the provinces. And he said, who will do the battle? And they said, well, muster the young leaders of the provinces and 
there were 232 of them. And after them mustered the people. There were 7,000 of them. And basically, the prophet says, I'm going to, God is going to give you the victory by these people. That probably wouldn't, would have been the last folks Ahab would have thought about, you know, leading his nation in victory over this huge force of Syrians and a coalition of other kings that were parked on his doorstep. Um, but what happens is they go out at noon with this really fairly small force considering everything and uh, Ben-Hadad and everybody's getting drunk. Uh, the leaders of the provinces went out first, verse 17. Ben-Hadad, Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol. And they said, well, the men of Samaria are coming out. So he says, if they come out for peace, take them alive. And if they come out for war, take them alive. Now that probably is the worst military order that's ever been give, given in the history of military orders. Uh, it's, it's obviously way, way dif- more difficult to take somebody captive than to take their head off. Uh, and just, we're going to take them all captive, no matter if they're coming for war or peace. And that's what we got to do. That's the order of the king who's drunk and doesn't know what he's saying. Uh, and, and so it just works into the hands of the people of God, the uh, relatively small force uh, that's going out to meet this huge force uh, completely rout the Syrian coalition, just drive them uh, into the, the ground. Uh, verse 20, each one killed his man, so the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued, and Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. The king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and the chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. God was with them, and uh, we're going to pause the story there. That's where we stop in this lesson. A lot of interesting things have happened in these uh, couple of chapters, and we'll follow up with it next time. Let's think about a couple of lessons we can learn from all of this. Uh, You know, God wants to show the power of his word working in us and through us. He does that through Elijah. God's word is so powerful. In the mouth of Elijah, as God gave it to him, uh, Elijah accomplished so much. But God's Word is still powerful today in the mouths of His servants. Uh, it is the Word of God that uh, brings people to salvation. That is God's power to salvation. If we'll speak it, we can accomplish, God can accomplish through us great things. Um, it's God that works in us, both to will and to do for His good pleasure. Through His Word, He's working through us. If we'll allow that to flow through us. Uh, that's Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Secondly, as we mentioned already, we're never alone when we're standing for the Lord in tribulation. The devil's a roaring lion, but in 1 Peter 5 and verse 9, we're told then to resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. That's what you've got to know. As you stand against the devil, you are not alone. God is with you, but you've got a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ that are with you too. And together we can stand. Know that. Don't feel like you're alone. You are not alone. It's a devil's ploy to make you think you are and to discourage and depress you. But you are not alone. And you've got whatever is going through, you know, on in your life, you've probably got people in this room right now that are going through the same thing. And we need to help one another with those trials and difficulties, whatever they might be. Last thing is, uh, 
were once again shown the foolishness of those in leadership positions drinking alcohol. Uh, it's just dumb. So don't do it. Comments or other thoughts? Uh, any questions or things to add on? Yeah, and, but that's, I don't know, that's how human beings are. You know, we have, we're on the mountaintop one day and we're down the valley the next day emotionally and with our courage, with our fortitude. Um, I can't explain it. I've had the same thing happen to me. You know, very similar kind of thing, and probably many of you have too. So, um, Doug, do you have something else? It's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a threat uh, based on you know, their, their gods. It's like taking a, an oath by their gods, almost a vow by their gods. And it, it's not, not just on those two occasions. I believe, believe it to you several other times in the mouths of others. That's a good point, though. All right, we're going to stop there. Thank you all for your good attention tonight.